and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. One of the major reasons that science isn't always black and white is because of corporate corruption and manipulation. The tobacco industry and how they tried to cover up the harms of smoking is an example we all know of. However, not as many people are aware that everyone, literally every industry, from big ag to big oil and big pharma, have all copied the tobacco industry's playbook and continue to use those same tactics now. The debate around the health and environmental impacts of GMOs and the herbicide Roundup is a perfect example. And in my view, there is no one who is more of an expert on corporate corruption of science than award-winning author and journalist Carrie Gillum, who has written and reported extensively on the lengths that Monsanto and other agriculture chemical companies have gone to to skew the data, science, and media coverage of pesticides like the herbicide Roundup. So if you want to hear the real uncensored truth about Roundup and glyphosate, keep listening. I am thrilled to have Carrie on this podcast today to discuss her latest book, Monsanto Papers, and what she has uncovered from internal Monsanto documents and Freedom of Information Act requests, and her personal experience as a journalist dealing with censorship and going up against powerful corporations. And really quickly before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. All right. Well, thank you, Carrie, so much for joining me today. I guess I just want to start with, can you tell me about your background as a journalist and working for Reuters and and what led you to researching Monsanto, corporate corruption, Roundup and all of that? Sure, sure. And thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Gosh, yeah, I've been a journalist a really long time. I never wanted to do anything else or be anything else from the time I guess I was 12 years old or so. Um, I thought it was a privilege and uh, just really a a great opportunity to sort of be able to uh, witness history, you know, write about really interesting things that were happening in the world, important things and, and learn about them and then share them with readers and get paid for it, right? I thought, what job could be better than that? So um, yeah, I worked my way up. I spent most of my career with a news organization called Reuters International. It's one of the largest and oldest news outlets in the world uh, and just had uh, you know great experiences there. I was a national correspondent reporting on a variety of issues around the country, um, you know, and, and being deployed to things like riots, you know, and, and hurricanes and uh, things like that. But my main beat for Reuters and my main responsibility was to cover corporate agriculture. And I was assigned this in the mid 1990s or late 1990s. And Monsanto, this company that your listeners may be familiar with, um, had just rolled out genetically engineered crops, these types of soybeans and corn and other you know, important food crops. And 
livestock feed crops that could be um, planted, a farmer could plant them and then spray Roundup or glyphosate-based weed killers directly over the fields, directly over the growing crops and the weeds in the fields would die, but the crops would not. And this was incredibly uh, revolutionary technology at the time. Um, and you know, so Monsanto was doing something that was really reshaping um, modern agriculture, industrialized agriculture. And this was not only important for world markets and you know, agricultural trade uh, in the United States and, and just food production generally, but it was important for environmental health. We were seeing that these genetically engineered crops had ramifications on the environment and biodiversity. And there were a lot of concerns about what this technology, this high use of this chemical glyphosate um, could do, you know, what, what that would mean for human health, because using this directly over the tops of food crops uh, you know, what did that mean? And would this weed killer then be in our food? And all of these things that were important to learn about. So um, gosh, this is a really long answer, but <laughs> that it wasn't necessarily, I didn't set out to say, gosh, I'm going to go, you know, investigate Monsanto. It was really just a beat assignment to write about, you know, all that was happening in this really important world, world of agriculture and how it was being changed and shaped by, you know, chemicals and specialty gene altered seeds uh, and what that meant for human health and environmental health. So I've been doing that ever since the 1990s. And that's led me, of course, to, you know, write these two books and uh, do the work I do now, which is writing for U.S. Right to Know, doing research for them, getting documents and data for this nonprofit, and then writing for the Guardian uh, news outlet as well now. So for people that might want to discredit what you're doing, you are a very credible, well-established journalist in the field. I certainly have been doing this a long time. I've won uh, several awards for my work, uh, including for my first book. And yeah, I mean, I've, I'm certainly, as I've written more, become more of an expert, I guess, on this area. Uh, I've been asked to speak all over the world to universities and uh, to policymakers and and others. And yeah, the industry, you know, certainly has not welcomed the in-depth coverage that I've given it and has made a lot of moves to try to discredit me and harass me, smear my name, smear my books. That um, I don't I don't believe that that has worked necessarily, you know. Um, they haven't been able to find any inaccuracies in my work. They tend to just try to make personal attacks against me. Yeah. And I want to get into that definitely, but, um, yeah, it's when you're going up against industry for sure, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of experience with that, but I guess first, um, well, your first book whitewash was about the corporate corruption going on within Monsanto and some of the science and evidence about, round up their weed killer. And your most recent book is kind of uh, Monsanto Papers tells a more personal story, I guess, about one man that got cancer from Roundup and sued Monsanto. So what motivated you to write Monsanto Papers as a follow-up to your first book? And who is really the target audience? Who do you want to read this? Yeah, I know. It seems like a, a lot, right, to write about this company, but yeah, so the first book, Whitewash, this was something actually wasn't even my idea. Um, the publisher that I ultimately worked with, uh, Island Press, came to me and when I was working at Reuters 
and said, gosh, you're writing a lot about um, these really interesting things happening in agriculture uh, and this chemical called glyphosate that has risen in use, you know, the, the extraordinary amount of this chemical that's now being used around the world has made it the most widely used of its kind ever in history. And it's become ubiquitous in our environment. You know, I was writing about studies that were showing it, um, it's, you know, not only in the food that people were consuming, but uh, the water that we drink, you know, surface waters found in the soil, persisting in the soil, and even being found by government researchers in rainfall. Um, so it was important, you know, to really understand the ramifications of this on human and environmental health. And this publisher thought that I should lay all that out in this first book, Whitewash, all of the scientific evidence looking at, again, the impacts on environmental and human health and how Monsanto had whitewashed um, or covered up that risk, the evidence of that risk for so many years and colluding with regulators and all of that. Um, but the book was really written in a more academic sort of tone. Uh, it, was, it was welcomed by different universities, made part of their environmental health curriculum at some places. Um, but again, you know, there were a lot of readers who told me, well, yeah, it's really hard to read. The <laughs> um, second book came about uh, because as I watched this first trial, this first person um, out of tens of thousands, actually, this first man, who was dying of cancer and became the first person in the world to take Monsanto to trial, alleging that this weed killer caused his non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The story was just fascinating. It was, there were so many twists and turns and crazy things that happened in an almost fatal accident, you know, with his lawyer right before trial. And Lee is just about to die, but he's trying to hold on. He's got two little kids. And, and it was just such a heart-tugging um, story to watch. I thought that's, you know, that's a whole different book. That's about the impacts of these decades of deceitful behavior and pushing this chemical use to these extraordinary levels and hiding the risks. This book is about what that means to a family, you know, what, what the impact of that means to this man and his kids and his wife. And then how these lawyers, it's, it's also a legal sort of thriller. It's how these lawyers come in and they never try to, you know, a case against Monsanto or a pesticide company, and they don't really know much about this, but of course they have to jump in with, with all their money and their resources and, uh, and how they bring this trial to, to, to make it happen. And so the story to me, that's why I wrote this book. It's, it's for cancer victims. It's for anybody. It's a very easy read. Uh, for anybody who wants to understand this on a really personal level. That makes sense. Totally. So I'm curious, can you share any, you know, actual uh, examples or can you tell any of those little stories about some of the things you saw about the lengths that Monsanto went to in this trial and, and to try and stop it or cover things up? Um, do you have any examples Oh, I mean, well, they, they of course, didn't want this case to go to trial. They didn't want any of these cases to go to trial um, and tried, as, you know, it, any defendant would in any case um, to, you know, get summary judgment or in some way to block uh, the spotlight, the very public spotlight that comes with a trial, you know, um, mm -hmm. and at the Lee Johnson trial and then the subsequent trials. Um, and as I write about in the book, 
all of these internal Monsanto documents um, had to be turned over by the company to the lawyers for the man that I'm writing about, Lee Johnson and other plaintiffs. And these internal Monsanto documents, you know, as, as one of the judges involved in this litigation said, you know, there's a fair amount of evidence that shows that the company didn't care about if its product was harming people. It only cared about protecting the product and continuing to make money off of it. And that's really what so much evidence showed in terms of the deception. I mean, gosh, it just goes on and on and on. There was internal emails showing them uh, trying to block a government agency review of their chemical because they're afraid that they're going to find, you know, that it it could cause cancer. And they collude with certain people inside the EPA to try to stop that outside agency from looking at it. There's just uh, on and on and on emails and communications about trying to ghostwrite scientific research to uh, get literature out there that looks like it's coming from independent scientists to look like Monsanto wasn't guiding this research, showing the chemical was really, really safe. Um, and you see in the emails that, you know, they really are guiding it and they're doing it very um, purposefully because they want papers that look like they didn't come from them to proclaim the safety of glyphosate and to be the defense of glyphosate around the world. This is how they talk about it. And they, they brag about ghostwriting and um, wow. all the things that they've done on a, on a, not just one study, but multiple papers. Um, they talk about, I mean, in these internal documents, they show the extent they go to deceive consumers uh, with ghostwriting articles that appear in like consumer magazines, uh, on websites, and they talk about manipulating search engine optimization. Wow. If people are Googling something, they'll get stuff Monsanto wants them to see. I mean, it, 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 there's so much of it. Um, it was actually hard to pack it all into a book. Um, and it, and it's really just jaw dropping some of it, just the hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, there's one example that I wrote about where they are celebrating all of their successful work and how hard these Monsanto scientists worked on this supposedly independent paper. And they're um, just about done with all the work and they're going to like have a celebration and get polo shirts printed up for the team um, because they did so much great work on this independent paper. It's like they don't even understand the hypocrisy um, as they discuss these things internally. So, wow. And when you say independent paper, I'm curious for, you know, like supposedly scientists are supposed to disclose their conflicts of interest or financial ties in a paper. So some of these independent papers, if a consumer or, or someone just reading the study would have looked at it, would there have been any indication that it was coming from Monsanto or would that just not be there at all? That was the idea to really make it look like there was either no involvement from Monsanto or only minimal involvement. And so in a series of papers, for instance, that were published like in late uh, 2016, the company again had, there, there's actually a statement that was attached to these, these papers that were published that said uh, no Monsanto you know, representative has you know, lo- looked at, reviewed, edited, you know, it actually stated that um, very definitive, you know, declaration, I guess. And and then we saw in the internal emails, again, where they are, you know, editing and directing and they're paying a couple of these supposedly independent authors, we don't know how many they were paying, Uh, you know, their, their fingerprints and their involvement were all over these papers, 
even though they very distinctly said they were not. And actually that journal, when those papers came out and I wrote about this and other journalists wrote about it, the journal actually um, said that we should retract these papers because obviously fraud has been committed. But the editor got, you know, it became a big battle and they did not actually end up retracting those papers. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's just, it's incredible. You, you have to look deeper at things when there's corruption involved. Yeah, it's a very difficult. Um, I mean, it's intentionally difficult um, for consumers, you know, or journalists or anyone to really know if you're getting a truly independent, you know, view and a truly independent voice because it's been it's become such a popular tactic not just by monsanto or the you know agrochemical industry certainly you've seen it play out in pharmaceutical you know medical um, tobacco industry but you know ghostwriting is is fraudulent and it, it really needs to um, be cracked down on i think by scientific journals for sure so what is the current state of all of the lawsuits against Monsanto? There are, you know, gosh, the numbers that we hear from the, the lawyers and from Bayer, over 100,000 people uh, in the U.S. Wow. With claims, um, Bayer is the giant German, German pharmaceutical company that bought Monsanto in 2018. And ever since, you know, this first trial, which took place in 2018, and actually right as Bayer paid its $63 billion for Monsanto. So Bayer has been trying, they've lost two more trials, uh, three out of three they've lost. They've been trying desperately to settle these claims. They've said they can pay up to $11 billion to try to settle all of these lawsuits. Um, It's not going so well. I mean, some of the plaintiffs are willing to take the money that's being offered. Some of them are not. When you have so many people, uh, that money, it sounds like a lot, a lot of money, but when you drill down and you take out the lawyer's fees and the costs, and then you try to spread that among so many people, it, it doesn't wind up to be a lot. And um, several people are balking at this litigation. There's a new trial in July, starting at the end of July, um, with a woman, a woman in her 70s who has non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and uh, you know is making the same claims that this is due to her exposure to Roundup and other Monsanto products. So we'll see, you know, if how a fourth trial turns out. I suppose. I'm just curious. Do you know? Like I've always wondered this. How did the the Bayer buyout of Monsanto? impact the ability to hold Monsanto accountable or liable? Was that some sort of play on their part or did they just absorb all of the liability from Monsanto? Bayer really seems to have been, um, you know, caught off guard, uh, certainly. And the investors in Bayer have been very upset with company management for this purchase of Monsanto. Again, they paid, you know, $63 billion dollars closed on the deal right as this first trial that I write about in my new book was beginning. And when the verdict came down, unanimous jury decision, $289 million in this first verdict, um, bear stock price plummeted. You know, um, investor confidence just went down the you know, drain. And investors you know, have continued to press management and be very upset with this Monsanto acquisition because of the life liability through litigation. So, you know, Bear Bear has since sort of acknowledged that it, it didn't recognize the extent 
um, of this litigation liability that they were going to face when they brought Monsanto under the fold. But they still maintain that, that it was a valuable acquisition. You know, Monsanto was the largest seed company in the world, a very aggressive, you know, R&D program at Monsanto and for agrochemicals and agronomic uh, programs and products. So, you know, bear, bear, bear's on the hook for a lot of money. Um, but, you know, what it's done for Monsanto, I guess, in the defense of, of glyphosate has certainly provided a wealth of resources uh, Bears a very wealthy company, very powerful company, and they're you know fighting tooth and nail, obviously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, interestingly, like I have a lot of friends and people I know in the scientific community who probably haven't looked into this issue super closely, but are very into the mainstream narrative in general around scientific issues. And have said to me when we've discussed these lawsuits that, you know, lawsuits don't determine science, that jurors aren't scientific experts. So just because there's lawsuits ruling that, you know, Roundup caused someone's cancer, that's not the same as a peer-reviewed study or a scientific consensus. So they still don't believe, you know, they're still sort of defending uh, glyphosate. Like, what would you say to that? Well, you know, the evidence that's presented at trial includes a, a very long list of scientific studies. You know, so um, I don't know what what these people think the evidence might be made up of, but there are you know published peer reviewed studies uh, that have been completed you know for year over many years time looking at glyphosate, looking at glyphosate based herbicides and the association uh, to cancer. So the premier scientist in the world who study these issues came together in 2015 uh, as part of the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer. And because glyphosate was being so widely used, so ubiquitous in our environment, uh, they wanted to take a look at the research. Uh, they looked at you know, a whole, whole body of say, studies that are involved farm workers, you know, epidemiology work and you know, human uh, real people, real life situations. They looked at toxicology, which are laboratory animals that um, these things are tested on. And they looked at sort of in vitro and in vivo work, um, looking at, you know, cell cultures and things like that, that have been done. And they looked at, you know, a real world situation that happened uh, in Colombia, where glyphosate was sprayed from the air and the community of people who had that extreme exposure and looked at their blood samples and DNA damage that um, had occurred. And when they, they put it all together, they said, well, it looks like the weight of evidence shows this is a probable human carcinogen. There seems to be a particular association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So, you know, there certainly is a great deal of evidence that it could cause cancer, that it is carcinogenic. There are also numerous studies, many of them that have been paid for and done by the companies that sell glyphosate, by Monsanto and other companies that sell glyphosate products. And those studies certainly do not show a cancer connection. So, you know, you have to, the regulators have to look at all of these studies. What we've seen, unfortunately, from the EPA um, and from some regulatory bodies in Europe, is that they aren't just looking at these studies with an objective eye. They're often looking at these studies with Monsanto or other chemical companies 
twisting their arms and, you know, shoving them in the back and saying, you know, I know that this looks like these mice developed a lot of tumors after their exposure to glyphosate, but you need to understand that that's not, uh, doesn't show cancer. You know, we see time and time again, the companies basically telling the regulators how to assess these studies. Um, Monsanto in 2016, when the EPA here in our United States was looking at the most recent research on glyphosate, they held a scientific advisory panel meeting in Washington, D.C. and invited in outside experts from around the United States to come in and, and tell the EPA, hey, are we looking at this correctly? Are we looking at these studies on glyphosate correctly? And, and these advisors said, no, you're not. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, you know, if you dig down and you really go through the evidence that is out there and that's presented at trial, you see why these jurors found unanimously that, yeah, this looks like it causes this person's cancer. Um, because in addition to the scientific evidence, again, you also have all of these internal documents from Monsanto showing them working very, very hard to manipulate the research and manipulate public opinion and manipulate and collude with or control regulators. So if you had a product that really didn't cause cancer and really was not a health concern, you wouldn't need to do all of those things. You wouldn't need to engage in all these deceptive tactics. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's so strange to me that like, it's just really common right now, this idea, you know, the average person can't understand these things. We need the scientific experts who really seem to be more industry <laughs> experts than unbiased scientific experts. So it's, it's so interesting. But so as a journalist, what is your perspective on mainstream media through all of this and how they have reported on the topic of Roundup and these lawsuits against Monsanto? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> when my first book came out, so again, you know, I, I had been writing about research and and talking to scientists and farmers. And, you know, I've done numerous Freedom of Information Act requests and gone through EPA archives, you know, for years and years and years. Um, and there was quite a bit of evidence, of course, you know, that the, the risks of this product had been whitewashed. You know, that's my first book. When my book came out, you know, it was before there was a Roundup trial. There had not been a Roundup trial yet, my first book. And I, there were journalists, there were a lot of skeptical people. And I, you know, there were several journalists who were like, eh, I don't think, I don't think this could be right. But then of course, as more evidence came out and the trials and the litigation and all of this evidence was just laid out for the public to see, of course, then I had all these people coming to me saying, wow, your, your book was true. You were right. And I'm like, well, of course it was true. <laughs> you know, and you know, everything was documented. Um, it's just, it's just there. So I think the media does what the media does. And there are a lot of lazy journalists out there who prefer to just take the corporate line and, you know, spew forth the talking points that they're told to, to use. You know, there's a lot of corporate effort to direct the media narrative, to direct media coverage, to tell um, mainstream journalists what to write, how to write it, when to write it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you see that happen a lot. Yeah. I mean, right now, it seems to me the whole like pro science versus anti science narrative is huge in the media. 
And anyone that has any questions or says anything different than the mainstream narrative on like many controversial scientific topics is, is, you know, considered like a, an anti-science crank or something. And from my perspective, what I've seen the pro-science narrative on Roundup and glyphosate is the corporate line that it's perfectly safe, doesn't cause cancer. It's still approved and should be widely used. It's going to help food insecurity and all these things. And if you say anything different, you're an anti-science crank or someone who doesn't understand this stuff and is just, you know, dismissed. Like, have you noticed that? And what do you, what do you think? What do you think about that? Well, I think you see less of that now because there has been so much evidence. There's certainly still that push to, to drive that narrative. There are a number of front groups uh, that are set up around the world, actually, that have been funded in the past and may still be funded by the agrochemical industry, specifically to promote and protect you know, these chemicals and genetically engineered seeds. Um, there's a group in particular called the American Council on Science and Health, which sounds like a really authoritative group, right? It sounds great. If you're a consumer, you're like, wow, that, I should do, you know, believe what they tell me. And they purport to be independent, um, you know, and putting out, you know, information you need to know about chemicals. And oh, by the way, so many of them are safe, despite what what people are telling you, what Carrie Gillum might be telling you, but we see in the internal documents where they, you know, are going to Monsanto. They've gone to other companies for money. They're going to Monsanto. They're saying, you know, we've been working really hard on your behalf. You know, we're saying all these things about how great glyphosate is. We need some more money. Could you give us some more money? And you see Monsanto's internal discussions. Yeah. You know, we're going to give you more money. And there's a great line that from a Monsanto executive who says you won't get a better value for your dollar than ACSH. Uh, and, and this goes on, um, pushing, again, what you described, you know, pushing this you know, narrative, uh, supposedly pro-science. Of course, it's, it's the reverse, right? It's, it's anti-science, it's pro-propaganda. So have you, I mean, you wrote this book during, you know, COVID as well, when, when there's a lot of media censorship and, and things like that going on. Have you personally been called anti-science? Like what has been thrown at you and how have you dealt with that? Oh my gosh. I think <laughs> I've, I've been called all sorts of things by these groups, um, American Council of Science and Health, Genetic Literacy Project, you know, all of these groups that have been so closely tied to uh, corporate interests. Yeah, anti-science, activists. There was one thread a year or two ago where they were trying to push this idea that maybe, um, you know, I was an unregistered foreign agent um, trying to help foreign governments undermine faith in the American food supply or something. You know, I can't quite remember that narrative work. It's kind of crazy, but um, just all sorts of allegations that are just out and out false that I worked closely. I had a financial relationship with the lawyers in the roundup litigation and supposedly met, you know, in these particular offices, certain numbers of times or things that are just completely made up out of whole cloth that there's no support for. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's what they do in terms of actual real media. I'm speaking there about front groups um, and COVID. I, I think COVID is a really good example of a media failure. Um, you know, this has been something where 
you know, there are a lot of heart issues or a lot of fast moving, you know, life or death sort of things happening, obviously. And we need really solid science-based reporting to help people, not, not just fear mongering or not just trying to drive a government, you know, propaganda campaign, but the really, you know, look at the really good example. So back in the early days of 2020, when, you know, COVID was coming and the first cases were in China and, oh, by the way, there's this Wuhan, you know, Institute of Virology and in Wuhan, it looks like that, you know, maybe they were doing gain of function research, you know, making viruses more virulent. This is something that had been a concern in the United States for many years. There have been outbreaks and lab leaks. There was concern about funding that work. Uh, the NIH, you know, um, had it looked like given grant money that had been funneled through a group that had gone to this institute. There were just a lot of questions and concerns. Did this virus perhaps, is it a lab leak? Did it come out of this Wuhan Institute perhaps? But there was this giant push and we've learned through emails and information. There was this giant push to create this media narrative that absolutely no way is it a lab leak. Anybody who says that we should look into that is crazy, is anti-science. It definitely you know, was zoonotic in origin, definitely must have come from an animal. You had Facebook censor any conversation of that. You had all the big news organizations just trumpeting the government pushed propaganda uh, about where, how this might have originated. Now, a full year later, when again, emails, internal documents have come out, we have a lot more information and we know it very likely did come from this lab. Uh, you know, we don't know for sure, but we know there are enough questions that researchers and journalists and others need to be digging in harder and not just continuing to be led by the nose by, you know, interested parties, pharmaceutical companies and government operators. And um, it, it just, it's been a profound failure. And, you know, now we look at all this coverage. There was a story in the New York Times um, recently that attacked um, this particular doctor. And they were saying he was spreading so much misinformation. And back in February of 2021, he was spreading these terrible falsehoods saying that the vaccines wouldn't prevent infections, the vaccines would not provide immunity and the vaccines would not stop transmission of the disease. What a horrible liar you know, he is misinforming the public. Well, the CDC has said all of those things. <laughs> that the vaccine doesn't prevent infection, that it doesn't prevent transmission, that it doesn't grant you, you know, immunity. Like we know that, yet you see the New York Times attacking someone who said the very same thing because he is not also following, uh, you know, this narrative that everybody should get a vaccine. So it, it's disappointing to see the media used in this way. Absolutely. So do you think, are there like, are journalists having to go outside of that system to report more honestly? Like, what is it, like, how is it for journalists inside there that try and do a story? Is there just like blatant suppression you think going on of like someone tries to write a story that's not just talking points and then the editors are like, nope, can't do that. Well, yeah, there's always been, I mean, I experienced it at Reuters. There are many other journalists who have experienced the same thing and kind of talked about some of it publicly and some of it not. But yeah, whenever you are writing a story or a series of stories that, you know, 
lay bare sort of the secrets or the misconduct of powerful organizations or companies or institutions, there's going to be a lot of pushback. And, and that's not only trying to smear your name on the internet, but it's going to your editors and, and constantly sort of harassing and making it as difficult as possible um, for stories to get out, challenging every single word, every single time. I used to be accused by Monsanto, they'd go to my editors and try to block stories and try to block coverage. And they would accuse me of false bias because they said I was not reporting just their view. I was also reporting the views of critics, you know, and, and people who had questions about their products. And so that was, that was false bias. That was, uh, or for false balance, I'm sorry, false balance. Um, because the only view that was correct or should be presented was theirs. So that goes on all the time. That's the whole, I mean, that's being used to justify deplatforming all the time. Now I've noticed it's like, we can't give a platform to misinformation. So we're not even going to host a debate. We're not even going to share both sides. It is, we're going to give a platform to this side only because they're automatically correct. And it would be dangerous or problematic to allow the other side a voice because we already know they're wrong. So we can't let them debate or have a public you know, discussion about this. Right. And I think that's really frightening. You know, we're supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to have freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And we're supposed to have an aggressive press that, that doesn't just take what the government says or what, you know, an important you know, company says um, that we that we investigate, that we ask hard questions, and we demand answers. And you know, this certainly isn't to say, you know, I, I'm not taking a position here on vaccines or COVID or anything like that. What I'm saying is that the media needs to remember, right? The fundamental job of the media is to provide scrutiny. Um, to government and to the powerful and to ask the questions and demand the answers that the, the taxpayers and the consumers and, you know, everybody who's impacted by these policies or these products, uh, the information that they deserve to have. And the journalists are, are really the only avenue for that. So we need to, to do our jobs better. <laughs> I think. Well, you are doing a great job and, I mean, I and many other people, I'm sure, so appreciate the work you've done to bring this to light and actually report more honestly on these issues. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, <laughs> and thank you for having the podcast. You know, it's really, it takes a village, right? I mean, it's journalists doing their jobs and, and other people like you doing theirs and sharing the information and using it and educate, you know, we all need to educate ourselves and then engage in the world in a way you know, that helps protect us and protect our future generations. Absolutely. So I guess the final question I like to ask is um, the name of this podcast is the Science is Gray podcast. So what does Science is Gray mean to you? <laughs> you know, I think that is, it, it hits the nail really on the head. I think that there are very, is very little when we talk about, you know, debates over glyphosate or agrochemicals or things like that. It's, it's hard to, for issues to be just black and white. You know, people say, okay, is glyphosate bad? Should it be banned? You know, and then you'll have people on one side saying definitely, yes, it should be banned. It's terrible. You'll have people on the other side saying, absolutely not. It's the greatest thing. We have to have it. I don't think it's black or white. I think it is an issue of gray. And I think there's issues of gray in so many things. 
Um, but people don't want to go there. They don't want to go to the middle ground anymore. They don't want to discuss compromise. Um, they just want to stand on their, you know, polar views, uh, unmoving. And that's such a problem, I think, in so many areas of our society today. But you have to look at the risks. You have to look at the rewards. You have to understand the impacts, um, you know, on, on all the different moves that you might make. And, you know, like for glyphosate, instead of glyphosate, I don't know. I'm not a policymaker, so I'm not going to say what should happen. But, you know, would it be a good idea maybe for glyphosate not to be sprayed directly on food crops anymore? Maybe you reduce the residues in food. Maybe you reduce the impact, you know, on the environment if you are more restricted or measured in your use of this chemical. You know, why don't we talk about that? Uh, why don't we talk about more protective gear? Why don't we talk about warnings on the labels? Like, there are a lot, there's a lot of gray, I think, um, mm -hmm. in this, in this situation, just as there is in many different things. So the title of your podcast is perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add here uh, at the end of our conversation? Well, I just the shout out, you know, check out my books, please follow me on Twitter, you know, Carrie Gillum, um, C-A-R-E-Y-G-I-L-L-A-M. But also look at US Right to Know, a little nonprofit, usrtk.org. Um, what we do is just provide documents and data and try to put up fact sheets and really just bring the, the fruit of the reporting endeavor uh, to the public in a very easy sort of one-stop shop. So, um, you know, come and take a look, usrtk.org. And, and if you care to support us, you know, we would welcome that. And links to all of that will be in the show notes as well. So people can find that there. Well, thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from. 